Thank you. Wow. Hello. Um, well, this is a very emotional moment for me after more than five years and the collective effort of a huge community of people around the world to, to make this film and to bring it to you. Ali, thank you so much. Um, you know, this is, this is the most beautiful cinema in Europe that we're sitting in. It's, and it's the most important documentary festival in the world, which you're so lucky to have in your city, right? Uh, and this is an extraordinary uh, historical moment um, for, for IDFA to bring this film just a week before the climate summit in Paris. And it's a moment of, uh, of immense stakes. So it's an interesting time as we prepare for this, this climate summit in this new context of terrorism to kind of zoom out and, and, and take a look around the world at the movements that are on the front lines who are trying to tell a new story about our place in the world. Um, we're, you know, this is, this, this is a very heavy moment for people in the climate justice movement because we were looking forward to a vast mobilization in Paris. Um, and now the, the French government has decided that that cannot happen. And yet it's never been more important for people to put pressure on governments from below. So we're all fiending away in the back rooms and in the email lists uh, trying to figure out new ways to pressure without the tool of mass mobilization. But the climate justice movement is, is on a tremendous roll in the last few years. Just since we finished editing the film last summer, uh, there have been an extraordinary string of victories, which is not to say that everything is looking good, but there's definitely momentum. So it's a, it's a fascinating moment to look around the world at what's happening. We'll try to do that with the film and to offer some of Naomi's uh, big ideas that can help us make sense of this, uh, of this moment. Naomi um, is at the hotel with our toddler at the moment. I think they're doing a puzzle on the floor. Um, but, uh, but she's coming for an extended Q&A. We're going to have a conversation after the film. And she's going to do a book signing as well. So she sends her regrets, but she'll be here after the film. And uh, look, the only thing worse than an earnest political introduction is a long one. So uh, it only remains for me to say thank you so much for coming. Enjoy the film. We'll talk after. Here. And uh, the, the extended Q&A after the film will be moderated by uh, our own Twanhuis that you know. Okay, see you later. Hallo. Welkom bij de Q&A bij deze prachtige film. In de zaal zijn de auteurs, de regisseur en de schrijfster van dit boek. U kent hen allemaal. Ik ga over in het Engels. Welcome to the stage, Naomi Klein en Avi Lewis. Please take a seat. Thanks so much for coming. Um, if it's okay with you, I would like to connect two dots. Uh, this, in this film, you are talking about what is happening with the oil sands in Alberta and Canada. And naturally, everybody here knows that two weeks ago, President Obama said the Keystone Pipeline, which will connect Alberta to Texas, we get rid of this project. We can't do this anymore, not because of the climate conference coming up, but we have to do other things. And I would like to talk to you about what happened in Paris and how that is connected, the terrorist attacks, with your film. First of all, everything changes. This, this pipeline, were, were you surprised that President Obama said, we're not going to do this anymore? Well, the, the Obama's announcement was 
um, was a result of a six-year struggle. And it's important to remember that, you know, they were, they were so confident, the company, when they started the project six years ago, that they bought the pipe, millions and millions of dollars of pipe, which has been lying in fields across North America, quietly rotting, and now they have to dispose of it. So this, this, was, this was a done deal when it started, and we've had this extraordinary movement that connected indigenous communities in the north of Alberta and rancher communities and through the Oklahoma and down to Texas, and so it was a massive coalition and a huge struggle, and I think people had the sense that it was going to be killed, but it's, it's a massive victory by, by, by any measure. It's, it's an extraordinary uh, overturning of the expected way of things, and I think we can see in Obama's late-stage climate evangelism that he is sensing the mood in, in, in North America as he's so good at doing and, and really getting that, like, that, that people uh, in, the, in the mainstream media and the political class are constantly underestimating the passion and enthusiasm out there for real climate action and smart politicians are, uh, are, are, you know, they know which way the wind is blowing. Well, well especially if they are in their last term uh, in, as president. That because helps. nobody has to vote for them anymore, <laughs> naturally. Helps. Because the other, to give it a Dutch flavor, Naomi, uh, the company Shell, the British Dutch company Shell, also decided to leave the oil sands alone in uh, Alberta because there's not enough money to be made there? Yeah, so Shell, first of all, it's wonderful to be, to be back here. It's been a year since I was in this very room, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be back. Um, and, and I want to thank uh, IDFA for, for hosting, hosting us once again. Um, so, yeah, so Shell has not left the tar sands. They're one of the major uh, oil companies operating in the, in the tar sands. But they have canceled um, in the past year and a half a couple of projects. The first project was a multi-billion uh, dollar mine um, that they hadn't started. And that was very significant because they, they, that meant that they were not expanding their, their presence in the tar sands. But just... Three weeks ago, they actually pulled out of a mine in which they had already invested $2 billion. So they took a $2 billion write down. Um, and that had never happened before. And when they did that, they said that one of their concerns was the, what, what they call pipeline capacity, which means if we dig it up, we have to get it out somehow. And all of these movements that in the film we call blockadia, um, have surrounded this industrial project. So it isn't just Keystone, it's, it, there's multiple pipelines. And there's no point digging it up if you can't get it to the sea. Yeah. Um, so there's something changing and it's the result of this movement and it's also the result of a price shock, right? That, that, that since we finished the film, the price of oil has collapsed. Um, and so the profit margin is much smaller. So I think the combination of a decrease in profitability and an increase in brand liability, mm. right, um, is causing decisions like this and also Shell's decision to pull out of the Arctic in Alaska in September. So we're seeing, you know, we, we have a lot of momentum right now. There's also the, 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 um, the, the, the prosecution of Exxon that the New York uh, Attorney General ha has initiated just in the past couple of weeks. We, we met uh, a year ago, exactly, yeah. and we were walking through the dunes uh, near Aymuide to make film recordings for a report in Newsure. And uh, you were also talking then about the kid that the two of you have. Uh, you have a son. 
he is here somewhere. I, I heard that he sometimes makes a little bit of trouble. I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure he'll offer a passionate opinion before <laughs> yeah. it's all over. <laughs> and one of the reasons that you guys did this film is naturally, I have two kids also because maybe for our generation there will be not multiple problems, but if we go on like this, then our children and their children will have uh, huge problems. Are you getting slightly more optimistic after the developments so, so, so first of all, we um, embarked on this project and, and had our son in the middle of it. So rather than an impetus, he was actually a delay. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is good on a long project, a 500-page book and a feature documentary. It takes yeah. that extra time to marinate, you know? The title becomes very interesting now. <laughs> everything changes. Yes, we certainly say everything well. changed for us. But um, I think the question of optimism is a slightly dangerous one. Mm. I think it's, it's, it's possible, it's, I don't think we ought to be optimistic because as a global society, we're headed in the wrong direction. Mm. We're still, emissions are increasing globally, we're rushing in the wrong direction. I think it's absolutely um, sane to be hopeful because for the first time in a long time, we see a lot of factors converging that suggest that we might be capable of a rapid transition off of fossil fuels. We have seen the price of solar technology plummet 75% in the last six years. Mm -hmm. The collapse in oil prices gives us a little breathing room when, as Naomi likes to say, when oil is over $100 a barrel in places like the tar sands, people can't think. It's crazy money. Yeah. There's no way to really have a sane conversation about the, 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 what's propelling our system when that much money is being made. And so we have a little breathing room. And we have this extraordinary surge of the climate justice movement in the last three years. Not just a climate movement begging politicians to bring down emissions, but a justice movement saying we have to move off fossil fuels in a way that deals with global inequality, in a way that deals with the multiple overlapping social problems we have. Now, there is a uh, very, I could say, scary element to what we are talking about today, because as everybody knows, uh, we had the attacks in Paris. In two weeks from now, the, the climate conference of the United Nations will start there. And one of the results, it's a bit on the back burner, but we know this already, is that any demonstration there that was organized is forbidden for maybe understandable reasons. But uh, what do you make of this? What will be the impact of what happened in Paris? And for example, today in Brussels, the fact that the prime minister in Belgium said, uh, we have signals that there will be an attack today in Brussels. So all the shops are closed. Uh, every theater is empty. There's nothing going on in Brussels and in maybe the rest of Belgium. Also, this festival here feels the shocks and the aftermath of what happened in Paris. Now, what will be the impact of the terror attacks on the climate conference? Mm -hmm. um, so, we don't, we don't know yet. Um, the argument I make in the book is that if we look honestly um, at the task of, of, of transforming our societies so that we get off fossil fuels quickly enough in line with what scientists are telling us. It changes everything about our political and economic system. You know, it is not just a technocratic and technological challenge. Um, it lights up all of these other issues. It lights up um, you know, what are the values and what, what's the ideology that governs our societies, right? I mean, do we believe in collective action? Do we believe that there's a role for government and the public sphere? Because if we don't, we have no hope of doing something as dramatic as getting our emissions uh, down to, we need to lower our emissions by 80% by mid-century in wealthy countries, right? This is not just like a technical fix of, you know, like getting CFCs out of, out of production. This is changing the building blocks of our economy. So the other thing that it, that, that it connects to 
is militarism, um, because we fight wars to access fossil fuels, and those wars destabilize regions. And then those regions are further destabilized by the impact of burning those very fossil fuels, because we know that, well, we know that the invasion of Iraq destabilized the whole region. We know that has something to do with oil, that, you know, I think it was Alan Greenspan who said if their major export was asparagus, they probably wouldn't have been invaded. Um, mm. and, and then on, on top of that, and this is something John Kerry has said multiple times, that the drought, the historic drought in Syria uh, um, was a major driver of the outbreak of civil war because there was huge uh, agricultural failure, crop failure. Uh, a million and a half Syrians were forced off their land, went into overcrowded cities. This fueled the conflict. So it's like this region is in a pincer, right, of having too much oil and too little water. Um, digging up the stuff that is causing climate change and then being first in line to feel the impacts of climate change. So it, to me, it's, this moment is not about, you know, can, can climate change compete with, a, with, with war and terrorism as an issue? It can't. Climate change gets blasted off the agenda, whether it's war, whether it's an economic crisis. We saw it in 2008. Europe, I mean, this country, was you know, very much focused on climate change. Uh, Europe was leading, and when the financial crisis hit, as I, as I was here last time, everyone forgot about climate change. But That's what you, people kept saying. But you are connecting it, which is very interesting. You wrote yeah. this piece in The New Yorker. Um, where the title is, Why a Climate Deal is the Best Hope for Peace in which you also say uh, the story about Syria, that this story is underreported in the Netherlands. Uh, not many uh, mainstream media outlets have reported that the fact that we have refugees here is because that one of the elements of that is climate change yeah. and that because of the drought in Syria. But the question was, what will happen in, during this conference? Where will the voices be of the people who want to influence politicians, prime ministers, presidents, if well, they can't protest or say anything? Well, first of all, there were always global solidarity demonstrations planned around the world for November 29th. Mm. Um, so in, it will migrate to other cities, you think? Well, it, it, it's already been growing in other cities. The mobilizations have been planned for a long time to be global. Uh -huh. And now I think there's huge momentum added and huge pressure added I mean, here, there's going to be a, a demonstration on November 29th here in Amsterdam. Um, if they cannot demonstrate in Paris, then we must demonstrate here. And so I think we hope to see uh, a, 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 a globalized response, as, as was always planned, but now like a, a strengthened one. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, I think everyone going to Paris as part of civil society is scratching their heads and trying to f figure out the answer to this question. Also, why is it okay to have football matches, but not okay to have peaceful demonstrations of... Of, of the right to free expression? Why is it okay to have Christmas markets? Why is it okay to have concerts? Why is the French government singling out what they were trying to contain and prevent anyway, which is mass mobilizations? Um, are you saying that the French authorities are misusing these terrorist attacks for well, quieting we, down the, the, the... There have been negotiations going on between the civil society coalition for a long time with the government about the parameters of the demonstration, and people in those negotiations have been reporting for a long time that the Hollande government was hoping they wouldn't happen, was trying to restrict them, was trying to limit them, was trying to shrink them, and now they've been cancelled. So, you know, uh, I, I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate concerns, my God. Everyone is terrified. Mm -hmm. But if you think you can provide security for 100 world leaders, more. <laughs> more, if you think you can provide security for soccer matches, then you know, I think people expressing uh, their right to free expression, should, sh they could provide security for that if, they, if it was a priority. I mean, m my view is that 
it's not acceptable um, to have a, a historic climate summit. And this is, you know, this, this is the most important climate summit since Copenhagen in 2009. Um, we, we are in the, the, you know, in the book I call it decade zero, right? Because climate scientists have told us that if our emissions are not pointing in the right direction by the end of the decade, we have blown our chance of staying within our carbon budget compatible with two degrees warming. So these next few years matter. We can't afford to change the subject again, to lose the script again. Um, and, and, and demonstrations matter. You know, we, we had a demonstration in New York um, during a climate summit a year ago where there were half a million people in the streets. And, you know, Obama gave a speech. He said, you, you've marched. We listened when he announced, you know, uh, the most ambitious emission reduction targets yet. So I think our movement does have an impact. And I, I also think it's important to understand that a climate summit is not like a WTO summit or a G8 summit where it's like just the, 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 the powerful politicians meet and you know, the, the powerless try to crash the party. Climate summits really are uh, uh, always, they always have been this mix of the official conference and civil society and pressure from the outside. So like Avi said, we're not saying that, that the concerns are illegitimate, but what I believe is that the United Nations should not have allowed uh, France to, um, like, I think the question before the Hollande government was, can you host this summit? Mm -hmm. The whole thing, right? Not, can you, can you, can you choose which parts you want to host? If the answer was no, we can't secure world leaders and secure a march, then we should have delayed the summit and somebody else should have hosted it. But that horse is left, you know, it's happening, and now we need to focus on how the, uh, the, the response to the summit in other cities is even stronger than was previously planned. Right. Because, <clears throat> not to dwell on this, but it must be a huge dilemma for leaders in France, because if you have everybody there and somebody succeeds to do anything, that will be the story of the climate conference in Paris. So cancel, yeah. the, cancel the football matches then. <laughs> Well, actually, they just did. A week ago, Dutch, the, the Netherlands were playing Germany in uh, Hanover, the, and they the stopped that. The ones planned during the summer. It's, it's the, the, the scare is really serious, because yeah. tonight, I think, there was a, maybe there are soccer fans here. FC Barcelona's place, mm. Madrid, I think. You, you can't have a gathering of 800 people and not have fans. It's, it's, it will be teams. the best uh, guarded, secured football sure. match if it goes on tonight. Yeah. But everybody's very jumpy. Uh, it reminds me of, I was living uh, at 9-11 in um, Washington yeah. and after yeah. in New York, and the, the mood is similar. You know, what is like happening the, here. this also gets to the heart of the matter of how we as human beings connect the dots. This fear is real. We're sitting in this theater imagining things that have happened, mm. right? Not far from here, not yeah. long ago. And the fear that's attached to the climate crisis is a different kind of fear. It's not the heart pounding, you know, present fight or flight mechanism that we have as human beings. Why not? Because well, there are no images? No, no. I think people, I think people um, we have a tremendous capacity to look away. I think when you, when, you, when you make yourself look at the climate crisis, you feel that heart-pounding fear because you start to understand what a historic moment it is that we've done this as human beings to our home. Um, but it's, but, it's, but it, because the fear is existential, because there's a tremendous amount of sorrow and grieving of what we've done to our place, uh, it, we push it down and we, and, we, and we concentrate on something else. And so I think these efforts, and I, 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 as someone who works with Naomi as, as well as lives with Naomi, I appreciate the way she connects the dots and helps us see the connections because it's actually giving ourselves permission to look is the first step 
in taking the fear, the genuine fear that we feel, and the, and the paralyzing terror, and turning it into galvanizing action and engagement. Yeah. And the reason I made the film was to try to create a space where people can gather in places like this, engage with the subject in a way that contains some seeds of hope, and create an invitation for people to stop looking away, and to, and, and to look at the climate crisis and say, this is an opportunity to build a better world in the way that we respond, and, and people are already doing it. If you had to make a top three or top five of world, world leaders who are listening to you, who have gotten the message now, who are making statements from which you can read, okay, yes, they understand. The Pope. <laughs> I think the list ends there. That's it? Well, no, I mean, well, why have a top five when you can have a top one? Doesn't that work as clickbait? <laughs> the top one world leader who cares about climate. Yeah, smallest kidding. country, a lot of <laughs> followers country. though. Smallest country, a lot of followers. More so. Twitter followers than some, yes. Yeah. Um, do you, are you trying to, I, I suppose you go to Paris, right? You will be there. Yeah, I'm going on Monday. Yeah. yeah. Are you trying to connect with, uh, with leaders to have this discussion or are they avoiding you as maybe being too radical in their eyes or? Well, you're showing the film to the Italian, at the Italian Yes, the, the Italian premiere week. of This Changes Everything is in the Chamber of Deputies yeah. uh, next week. Hmm. So maybe after a short trip to Italy, we'll, we'll conclude that there are leaders there who are listening. <laughs> or the room could be empty. Yes. It could be like one socialist deputy and like a lot of empty seats. We'll you, see. No, I mean, look, we, there's a, there's, there are signs of hope. You know, in Canada, we just voted out our, uh, our climate criminal government uh, just a, 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 a few weeks ago. And now you so have the, the good-looking prime minister, We have Trudeau. our very handsome young Distractingly good-looking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are all jealous. But the first, one of the well, things he Australia, did, what he called President Obama when he said no to the pipeline, the first thing he did is, well, listen... Mr. Obama, no, I'm very disappointed our, our about this, and this is, this is going to cost my country money. That's he what openly he supported that pipeline throughout the campaign, yeah, yeah. and we have lots of pressure to put on him on the climate file. We're excited about having half women in the cabinet. That's <laughs> exhilarating as Canadians. He and, hasn't seen the film yet. And we, we don't know whether he's seen the film. But we, um, you know, I think there are some good signs. I mean, obviously, Obama in his second term, uh, Obama under pressure from these movements is, uh, you know, getting a lot closer than the Obama of his first term and the Obama that we saw in Copenhagen. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are some good signs in Australia that, you know, the two worst leaders in the world uh, on climate in, in many ways were Tony Abbott in Australia and Stephen Harper in Canada, who had really just doubled down and were intransigent at all of these negotiations, and neither of them will be going to Paris. Um, but, you know, the Pope was being flippant about this, and obviously, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, a secular Jewish feminist, you know, I disagree with the Pope about pretty much everything, but I do find his leadership on climate to be deeply inspiring. And it's inspiring in, um, because he connects the dots between these multiple crises of inequality and what he calls the throwaway culture. That I think the, the encyclical on climate change is really worth reading no matter what you believe in or if you don't believe anything. Um, because it is this holistic document that is about how we're, we are fr facing this narrative of a dominance-based worldview. And for this to come from the Pope, you know, to say actually scripture has been misinterpreted, we do dominion, we do not have the right to dominate nature. Nature has a right to exist, an inherent right, not just 
to, uh, to serve us. Um, this is really interesting and it reaches people who we could never reach, right? I mean, this is what's sort of exciting to see him come to the United States and you know, speak to hundreds of thousands of people and get the total rock star treatment and address Congress, which was absolutely hilarious because he was invited by the Republicans, right? But they had actually invited the, the previous pope, they invited Benedict. Whoops, wrong pope. And then they were like, oh no, we're stuck, you know, with, with, with the commie. He's, and, and they couldn't uninvite him, you know? Uh, so He is it, the pope after all. <laughs> but I think it just shows that, that, that things are changing quickly, you know? I mean, I, I published the book a year ago, and um, really the landscape has changed in some very significant ways when you look at the, the impact of the oil price drop, what's happening in the market, the rise of the fossil fuel divestment movement, that it has increased exponentially. Um, the, the, as Avi said, the collapse of the price of solar, um, these political changes, the Pope. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 the, but the key action over which we have some control, we don't have control over world, world leaders. We're invited to vote every two, three, four, five years, depending on the system. They pretty much do what they want or what they agree among themselves once they're elected. Mm -hmm. What we do have power over is pressure from below. Look at what happened in this country with the Urgenda group, right, which brought that suit against the Dutch government. Mm -hmm. This is an unbelievable victory, a huge, a huge civil society victory. It's not a Blockadia-style victory of direct action. It happens to be legal activism. But your government now has to cut emissions by 25% in five years, and they're dragging their heels. They're fighting it. They are they're fighting of this. course they're fighting it, but we've also heard, and you've been following this in the mm -hmm. press here, that there's now talk of a deal to phase out coal in the Netherlands as a result of this court decision, which may happen soon. Mm. So you, we might see a really, that would be a dramatic shift. You know, you've got the biggest coal port in Europe, one of the biggest coal export centers in the world right here. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of people in, in the Netherlands consider their country to be kind of green and have this great tradition. Well, you've got a lot of dirt in your backyard, as you know. You've got the biggest gas fields in Europe in the north with 1,000 earthquakes and 50,000 people claiming damage from Stop it. Stop showing off. We did our homework. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, <laughs> as, you did, as you did a year ago, because well, well, you, you we, were criticizing in this television interview that we yeah, did, I mean, the Dutch We can government. talk about the Pope all we want, but this, ha this is happening <laughs> yeah. right here, and people are responding in this country. Are and, you and surprised they have that, that uh, we are the slowest um, uh, to change anything? Oh, it's totally it's, shocking to if us. If you we compare you guys us to, were all to like Germany, then there's something happening, and here yeah. nothing yeah. is happening. Well, well you know, I don't the think nothing correction. is happening now. That's the point. Actually, things are starting to happen. But not the government. You know, the one correction, I said this the last time I was here, but... You know, that, that's a very thick book you have in front of you. There's a lot of facts. I have 70 pages of, of endnotes. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that I haven't had to issue uh, any major corrections to the book because I have a wonderful research team, but there are two exceptions. One, I got the name of a children's book wrong mm -hmm. that I read to my son. Embarrassing. I called it, have you ever seen a moose? And it's actually looking for a moose. And the other thing I had to correct was that I mistakenly said that the Netherlands had ambition, ambitious <laughs> emission reduction. Uh, and I put it in the same category uh, you know, as, as Denmark. And, and, and I had to correct that. It's, it's not in the new edition. Um, because what's happened you know, in this country it, it's, it's quite, is quite shocking. The targets were good. But there was no follow-up, and this is, you know, this is what happened in direct response to the economic crisis, right? I think that the Netherlands was on track, um, and then the subject was changed. And this is, you know, this is what my last book was about. This is what the shock doctrine is about: is how crises and shocks can and are harnessed. Um, 
to, uh, to, to push through policies that benefit elites. It happens again and again. We're seeing it happen in real time now in the wake of the Paris attacks with attacks on privacy, um, pushing through policies that, that were on the books before this. Um, and, uh, and if it happens with climate, again, um, we've really blown it. Like we do not, we've wasted the first half of this decade. We cannot waste the second half of this decade. It's as simple as that. Very clear. Um, there is a VIP room here uh, somewhere. People will find it outside. It's upstairs. It's upstairs. And Actually, you, you know what? About the book signing, it's at 5.30 and we just have to wait for another event to finish. Oh, okay. So we want to encourage people, if you do want to get a book signed, to have a drink in the magnificent lobby of the Tichinsky Theater. <laughs> okay. So there and, is uh, a book signing at, afterwards. Meet us at 5.30 in the yeah. VIP. Uh, I think we have time for a couple of questions uh, from the audience. So, no, no. no, you don't want to do it? We want to do it. You don't. We you don't want, or do you want to go home thing. and uh, have a cup of coffee and sit in front of your television? I don't know. But if there is a question, then uh, please raise your hand. That's the first one I see here. Yeah. Could you stand up, sir? And uh, Is there a microphone here? I don't know. Yeah, there is. No? I'll repeat it. Because there is no microphone, please keep it short so everybody, I can repeat it. Have you heard of the comments of Jeremy Rifkin? I don't think it's just Jeremy Rifkin's, but I do, I have, yeah, of course, I know his work and, and, and he does great work. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, I'm in contact with him, sure. Yeah, I think he may overplay the impact of 3D Printing. Um, I'm yeah, not there's, sure your, there's your Rifkin critique. The three, the he three, overplays I, the impact of 3D printing. <laughs> See, well, if One we didn't more. have this Q&A, we would never have got to that. We're almost out of time, so uh, the lady in front of you. Yes. Okay, the, the 1%, interesting question. The people who are making money out of it, and, and you say it's 1%, so the, the oil companies, but um, people with a lot of money. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, in the television report we made with you, we had the, uh, the, the guy who started Microsoft uh, <laughs> confront, <laughs> confronting um, uh, with your criticism. He is changing right now. He's um, yeah, so I mean, Bill Gates is interesting because he admits he's, that the market cannot do this on its own. He gave an interview recently, a long interview to The Atlantic, um, where he said, yeah, there's money to be made, but nothing like the money that you can make from digging up fossil fuels. There's money to be made in renewables, but it is not the same kind of money. It isn't this, you know, Exxon made $42 billion in a single year. Mm. No company in the history of money has ever made that much money, right? I mean, this is a whole other scale. So in terms of the mindset, I mean, I try not to to overly personalize it um, in the sense that, you know, this is a system and, and um, fossil fuel companies work within a system that actually structurally requires them to behave this way. Um, there's something called the, the um, reserve replacement ratio, right? And, and, and you know what that is. Anybody who follows Shell knows what that is. What it means is that a fossil fuel company must have as much in res new reserves as it has in production um, or the market will start to bet it down, 
So they structurally have to keep looking for more fossil fuels because if there's a year, and this has happened to Shell, when they had less in reserves than they had in production, and their stock price started to go down. Um, so it's not because they're evil necessarily. I mean, they may be. Um, but it's, I, it, it's because they're working within the system, and this is why we have the, fo the fossil fuel divestment movement, um, because you know, this is an unethical business model. Right? Fossil fuel companies now have, five, as you saw in the film, five times more carbon in their reserves than is compatible with that two-degree target. Um, but but, but it, it also in answer to your question, yes, there is a fortressing for elites. I mean, after Sandy uh, in New York, new, new uh, luxury condos started marketing that they had um, uh, <laughs> literally bunkers with submarine doors, you know, in the case of disasters. Um, I have this in the book, um, you know, that, that they have emergency generators, you know, so that your lights will never go out. Um, more and more you have a privatized disaster response infrastructure. And I think that there is a mentality of, of okay, well, at least for, 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 for the people who have money, money can protect you from the worst of the impacts, at least in maybe the next 50 years, right? Um, and I found, found that, you know, when we hung around at the Heartland Institute, you know, you saw some of that footage, right, in the film. You know, they're laughing about, like, there's a guy who said, well, you know, the French, you know what happened after all those people died in the heat wave in France, right? And we're referring to a heat wave in Europe where 30,000 people died. They said they discovered le air conditioning, that was a joke, and they all laughed, right? So there's, there's a flippancy about this and a devaluation of life in a sense that people sort of deserve what they get. That is, I think, the reason why climate change denial is so strong and that sort of Tea Party right. And that's why I really do believe that we have to talk about ideology because this ideology is a problem. It's, it's not actually compatible with acting in ways that are decent in the face of this crisis. And it is, is compatible with not just fortressing our condominiums, but fortressing our countries, right? Um, and, 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 you know, I think we are seeing what that sort of ugliness looks like in the refugee crisis. We're also seeing the best that humans are capable of, um, you know, with people saying refugees welcome and opening their homes. Humans are capable of both, and we need to think about what systems are going to encourage our better selves and discourage um, our worst selves, because we're complicated. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks. Um, have a great stay in Amsterdam. I wish you lots of luck with the great film and, uh, and also with the climate conference. And so uh, 5.30 book signing in the VIP room directly above here. Thank you so much for coming.